Chapter 21 of Hellenic History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. Hellenic History by George Willis Botsford. Chapter 21. The Lacedaemonian Empire and the Ascendancy of Thebes. Part 1. The Lacedaemonian Empire, 404 to 371. Old Professions and a New Policy As champions of particularism, of the untrammeled sovereignty of the individual city-state, the Spartans had led their allies in the wearisome war with Athens, and finally, when her ramparts and her ports came into their hands, they and their allies fell to leveling the fortifications and walls with great enthusiasm, to the accompaniment of the music of women pipers, for they thought that day the beginning of Hellenic liberty. The realization of their hopes would have turned back the clock of history two hundred years into the past. When, however, the Spartans found themselves masters of eastern Hellas, they would rise to no higher conception than that of holding what they had gained. Disregarding their promises, they thought merely to substitute their city for Athens as the head of an empire, no small part of which they had already sacrificed to Persia. Nature of the Change in Leadership, Lysander the change from Athenian to Spartan leadership was a decisive step downward. The Lacedaemonians lacked the intelligence and the broad, generous humanism of Athenians. They were totally without experience in imperial finance and in the administration of justice. For the time being, these men of narrow mind were controlled by Lysander. Born of a Heracleid father and Helot mother, and reared in the poverty and discipline of his city, he had developed an unscrupulous cleverness, an astounding mastery of men and parties, and an ambition for the lordship of Hellas. Throughout the Aegean world, he had organized oligarchies in every city and had attached them to himself. On him, all eyes centered in fear or admiration. He was the first Greek to whom cities erected altars and offered sacrifices as to a god. In his honor, the Samians changed the name of their chief festival, Horea, to Lysandria. Thus the orientalizing Greeks of Asia Minor and its neighborhood displayed their acquired servility in the deification of this enormous egoist, the Decarchies. The oligarchies of ten, Decarchies, established by Lysander in the Aegean cities taken from Athens, were ostensibly to hold them loyal to their new imperial mistress. The members of these boards were partisans of Lysander, usually supported by a Peloponnesian garrison under a Helot commander, Harmost, who catered to their villainies in exchange for flattery and spoil for himself and license for his men. Thus protected, the Decarchs reveled in the plunder, oppression, and murder of their fellow citizens, and inventing upon personal enemies the hatred they had long been gathering in their souls. What form of oppression escaped them, or what deed of shame or of cruelty did they not perpetrate? The most lawless they deemed most faithful to themselves. They courted traitors as benefactors and they chose to be slaves to a helot that they might outrage their own native land. The Thirty, 404-3. We lack detailed knowledge of their government, but may be sure that it differed little in character from the rule of the Thirty at Athens. This board was instituted under intimidation from Lysander, ostensibly to draw up a new constitution for Athens, but in reality to govern with absolute sway. One of the leaders was Critias, a Eupatrid writer, a poet, rhetorician, and political thinker, noticed above as a pronounced atheist, a dilettante in literature, 
and in politics, a heartless, calculating schemer. His colleague in the leadership was Theramenes the Shifty, who, while preferring a moderate oligarchy, had managed to emerge triumphant from every difficulty through which he had passed. Butchery and Confiscation Beginning in moderation, the rule of the Thirty rapidly degenerated to a selfish, bloody despotism. Supported by their Lacedaemonian Harmost, they proceeded to condemn and put to death their political enemies. Executions were always accompanied by confiscations of property. Still, wanting funds for the payment of the garrison, they next proceeded against wealthy men, even of oligarchic views. As many alien residents were well-to-do, they inevitably fell victims to the tyrant's greed. There were wholesale banishments. Many fled, too, through fear, so that the surrounding states were full of fugitives from these monsters. Among their oppressive acts was an edict for abolishing higher education in literature and philosophy, the effect of which, if long continued, would have been to wipe Athens from the history of civilization. Meanwhile, by protesting against the violence of the Thirty, Theramenes incurred the mortal hatred of Critias, to whom the very idea of moderation or of compromise meant overthrow and death. With frantic haste, Theramenes was imprisoned and compelled to drink the deadly hemlock. More violent grew the reign of terror, till in the eight months of the oligarchy the butcher's bill mounted to 1,500 lives. The Fall of the Thirty, 403. In spite of orders from Sparta, the neighbors of Athens received the exiles with sympathy and aid. From Thebes, Thrasybulus, one of these refugees, led a small band of patriots across the border to seize a fortress on Mount Parnas. Thence, after increasing his force to a thousand, he occupied Piraeus. With so small a band, it was a bold stroke, but this stronghold of democracy welcomed him and reinforced his army. In the streets of the port town, the patriots battled with a military force of the Thirty, defeated it, and killed Critias. Soon afterward, the democracy was restored. About the same time, many decrees fell. The Spartans permitted all this to happen because they disapproved of the insolence and the vaulting ambition of Lysander, who was playing the despot throughout their empire. Confronted by a menacing opposition at home, he retired into exile. The Expedition of Cyrus, 401. Shortly after these events, Cyrus, with whose aid Peloponnese had triumphed over Athens, set out at the head of about 13,000 Greek mercenaries and a much larger number of Asiatics against his brother Artaxerxes, who had succeeded to the kingship of Persia. The prize of battle was to be the throne. At the town of Kunaxa, not far from Babylon, the brothers met. The Greeks were victorious over a greatly superior force, but Cyrus was killed, and the expedition therefore failed. Although the Hellenic generals were entrapped and slain by the enemy, the mercenary force elected new commanders, among them Xenophon. According to his account, vividly presented in the Anabasis, this young man, an Athenian of the school of Socrates, was the inspiring genius of the retreat. The homeward march of the 10,000 across rivers, over mountains, and through the deep snows of Armenia, ever harassed by the enemy and in want of food and clothing, was a heroic achievement. It proved that the Greeks had not lost their virility, and it laid bare the weakness of Persia. War between Lacedaemon and Persia, beginning in 400. A result of this expedition was war between Lacedaemon and Persia, for the Spartans had given aid to Cyrus. A Peloponnesian army accordingly invaded Asia Minor and was reinforced by the remnant of the 10,000. Ultimately, all or nearly all the Hellenic cities were liberated, and some native towns in the interior, including Pergamum, were taken. In 396, Agisilas, 
king of Lacedaemon, took command. Though far from brilliant, he was master of the art of war as taught in Sparta, and with an army of scarcely more than 20,000 men, he made headway against the forces of the empire. Encouraged by the expedition of Cyrus, he hoped to win for Hellas a great part of Asia Minor. General dissatisfaction with Spartan leadership. In the eyes of many Greeks, however, these achievements could not atone for the prodigious injustice inflicted upon them by Sparta. The Decarchies and the Thirty were but a fraction of the grievance. To neighbors and allies, the leading city seemed committed to a policy of self-aggrandizement. Opposition in a weaker state she crushed with war and devastation. Her greater allies were irritated by their total exclusion from the advantages of victory over Athens. Chief factor in bringing on the war, Corinth, had lost her colonies on the west of Greece and had seen the ruin of her commerce and industry with no corresponding gain. Thebes had profited by the pillage of Attica and by tightening her grip on the Boeotian Federation. But in proportion to the exaltation of Sparta, both states suffered depression in the general council of Peloponnese. Both were split into patriotic and laconizing factions at bitter feud with each other, and when Sparta intermeddled, the two states declared war. Argos, always at heart an enemy of Sparta, joined the coalition. Athens and the Coalition Against Lacedaemon In Athens, since the fall of the Thirty, the radical Democrats, who usually controlled the government, were hostile to Lacedaemon. To them it was a source of pride and of encouragement that the Persian king had appointed the Athenian Conan admiral of a fleet to operate in the Aegean Sea against the Lacedaemonians. With the connivance of the 500, but against the judgment of the moderates, the extreme democrats secretly sent him men and supplies. Under these circumstances they welcomed the opportunity to join with Thebes, Corinth, Argos, and a few lesser states in a coalition against Sparta. Thus arose the Corinthian War. The Corinthian War, 395-387 to Early in the war, the Lacedaemonians found it necessary to recall Agesilaus from Asia. He obeyed, but it is clear that, though he had thus far cherished hopes for all Hellas, his spirit was henceforth embittered against those states which had thwarted his Panhellenic ambition. In fact, the war was a disastrous blunder, for Spartan oppression lost severity as the Hellenes were already learning to safeguard their local liberties, while enjoying the benefits of national unity. Small victories were won by the Lacedaemonians, yet with little comfort to the winners. These gains, however, were more than offset by an overwhelming naval victory of Conan off Nidus over the Peloponnesian fleet, 394. Thus fell the Lacedaemonian naval supremacy, which ten years earlier had been established by Persian gold. The first fruit of the victory was the liberation of the maritime states from the Laconian garrisons. In the following year, Conan sailed into the harbors of Piraeus. With the labor of his crews and with Persian money, increased by contributions from Thebes and other friendly states, he rebuilt the fortifications of the port town and the long walls. After the completion of these works, Athens again counted as a power in Hellas. She recovered Skyros, Imbros, and Lemnos, long occupied by her colonists, and renewed her alliance with various Aegean states. A Lacedaemonian regiment destroyed, 390. A graver misfortune befell Lacedaemon by land. Recent years had seen a great development of light infantry. A master of this branch of warfare was the Athenian Iphicrates, who had trained his light troops to a high pitch of efficiency. With this force, in the neighborhood of Corinth, he attacked a heavy battalion, Mora, of Lacedaemonians, 600 strong, and annihilated it. Among the slain were 250 Spartans. 
It was a terrible calamity, for the whole Lacedaemonian force counted but six such battalions. The number of Spartans had so shrunk that they could entertain no hope of ever filling the vacant ranks. They were too conservative to adapt themselves to new military conditions, and the shock to their martial prestige proved irremediable. The Treaty of Antalcidas, 387. For some time, Sparta had been treating with Persia for peace, and now, as the tide of war turned decidedly against her, she urged on the negotiations. Her deputy, Antalcidas, rewon the king's support, which speedily restored to Sparta her dominance in the conflict. At the summons of the satrap Tiribazus, accordingly, deputies from the Hellenic states met at Sardis to hear the terms of peace dictated by the king. When the assembly had convened, the satrap pointed to the royal seal attached to the document and read the contents. King Artaxerxes deems it right that the cities of Asia, with the islands of Clazomenae and Cyprus, should belong to himself. The remaining Hellenic cities, small and great, he wishes to leave independent, with the exception of Lemnos, Imbros, and Skyros, which three, as formerly, are to belong to Athens. Should any of the parties concerned not accept this peace, I, Artaxerxes, together with those who share my views, will war against him or them by land and sea, with ships and with money. Effects of the Treaty The treaty required the Athenians to give up their maritime league. Thebes to grant independence to her Boeotian allies, and Corinth and Argos, now closely united, to separate. All the greater enemies of Lacedaemon disliked the terms, but all were constrained to accept them. It was a disgrace to Hellas that her Asiatic cities should be definitively surrendered to the king, and that he should become the arbiter of her fate. It was unfortunate, too, that the duty of enforcing the peace fell chiefly to the Lacedaemonians, who, having learned nothing by experience, exercised their renewed power with insolent brutality. During the decade immediately following this treaty, Hellas was in a miserable plight, as Isocrates, writing in the midst of this wretchedness, testifies. Who could desire a condition of things in which pirates hold the seas, mercenaries occupy the cities, and instead of warring against foreigners in behalf of their country, the citizens fight with each other inside the walls? More cities have been taken in war than before we concluded the peace, and on account of the frequency of revolutions, the inhabitants of the states live in greater despondency than those who have been banished. Hellas was full of exiles, who menaced their home states with violence or joined mercenary bands, to disturb the peace and to destroy property and life throughout their nation. In spite of these mischievous results, it will be made clear in the course of this chapter that the Treaty of Antalcidas served as a beginning of the most important peace movement in Hellenic history. Further Aggressions of Sparta To rid herself of possible enemies, Sparta compelled the Mantineans to destroy their city and to scatter in villages, 384. She treacherously seized the citadel of Thebes in a season of peace, 383. At the same time, she was pushing her hegemony into northern Greece. In the later years of the Peloponnesian War, the Lacedaemonians had gained control of the region about the Malian Gulf, including a part of Thessaly. Farther north, the kingdom of Macedon, growing in power and menacing the Thessalian states, drove them into alliance with Sparta. Under these circumstances, the Lacedaemonians steadily extended their influence northward. Rise of the Chalcidic League Meanwhile, however, a rival was growing in Chalcides, where Olynthus, by absorbing adjacent communities, had become the leading city. Thence she made herself the center of a Chalcidic League of a type far more liberal and advanced than any other thus far known to Hellas. 
The citizens of every city had rights of holding property, transacting business, and contracting marriage in every other city. One body of laws and one citizenship were the common possessions of all. In a great degree, the Union had the character of a single state, in which the cities were municipalities. It was an aggressive power, ever intent on annexing new communities by persuasion or force, reaching out thraceward toward the gold mines of Mount Pangaeus, and wresting from sedition-ridden Macedon its very capital, Pella. Even those cities which were forcibly annexed readily lost in the advantages of their new connection all love of political isolation. Here then was offered a solution of the peace problem of Hellas, a cure for the interminable interstate strife of internal revolutions, banishments, and massacres. At the request of neighboring Hellenic states, whose sovereignty was threatened by Olynthus, Lacedaemon interfered, and in a war of four years, 383 to 379, she destroyed the federation and forced Olynthus into alliance with herself. The Climax of Lacedaemonian Prosperity, 379. By these measures and others of a like nature, Sparta made herself supreme over all that part of eastern Hellas which she had not surrendered to Persia. She formed, too, a treaty of alliance with Dionysius, tyrant of Greek Sicily and Italy. Never before had Hellas attained to so high a degree of political unity. On every side the affairs of Lacedaemon had signally prospered. Thebes and the rest of the Boeotian states lay absolutely at her feet. Corinth had become her most faithful ally. Argos was humbled to the dust. And lastly, those of her own allies who displayed a hostile feeling toward her had been punished so that to all outward appearance the foundations of her empire were at length absolutely well and securely laid. Agisilas. The man who led his city to these achievements was Agisilas, the embodiment of the Lacedaemonian spirit, patriotic, ambitious, and efficient, but with stunted ideals, unprogressive alike in military art, in statesmanship, and in humanism, a man who tested the right or wrong of every action by the sole advantage of Sparta, whose vision, limited to brute power, took no account of the moral forces roused through Hellas by his policy of blood and iron. Liberation of Thebes, 379-8. Abundant examples might be found alike in Hellenic and in foreign history to prove that the divine powers mark what is done amiss, winking neither at impiety nor at the commission of unhallowed acts, but at present I confine myself to the facts before me. The Lacedaemonians, who had pledged themselves by oath to leave the states independent, had laid violent hands on the Acropolis of Thebes, and were eventually punished by the victims of that iniquity single-handed, the Lacedaemonians, be it noted, who had never before been mastered by living men. With these words, Xenophon, the historian, prepares the reader for the catastrophe in the drama of Lacedaemonian supremacy. In a thrilling story, he then tells how a few patriots, who had fled to Athens, secretly returned to their native Thebes, destroyed the oligarchy set up by Sparta, and expelled the garrison from the citadel. Thebes was now free and at war with Lacedaemon. No long time afterward, a Spartan attempt to seize Piraeus drove Athens into alliance with Thebes, 378. The Second Athenian Confederacy, organized 377. From the time of the battle off Nidus, 394, the former allies of Athens, having had enough of Lacedaemonian tyranny, began returning to her. These alliances, dissolved by the king's treaty, 387, were almost immediately renewed. Now that she faced a new struggle with Peloponnese, 
Athens called upon all Hellenic states and on all foreign states but Persia to join in a league of protection from the common tyrant. In 377, it was decreed by the council and the assembly, in order that the Lacedaemonians may allow the Hellenes to live in peace, free and autonomous, and to possess their respective territories in security, that if any of the Hellenes or of foreigners dwelling on the mainland, or of the islanders, except such as are subjects of the king, wish to be allies of the Athenians and of their allies, they may become such while preserving their freedom and autonomy, using the form of government that they desire, without either admitting a garrison or receiving a military governor or paying tribute, and upon the same terms as the Chians, the Thebans, and the other allies. From the date of the archonship of Nausinicus, it shall not be allowable for any Athenian, either in behalf of the state or as a private person, to acquire either a house or a piece of land in the territory of the allies, whether by purchase or by mortgage or in any other way. By this provision, some of the most irritating grievances of the former confederacy, such as the imposition of tributes and colonization, were to be avoided. All members of the League were to send their representatives to a congress at Athens, in which the Athenians alone were to have no part. A resolution passed by the congress and the Athenian assembly was to be binding on the League. Thus Athens was made equal to her collective allies, but was debarred from tyranny over them. By resolution duly adopted, military and naval forces and money contributions were to be levied as they were needed. The constitution of the Second Confederacy, as it is named, was more equitable, but far looser and less efficient than had been that of the 5th century. War between the Confederacy and Peloponnese, 377-4 War with Peloponnese went on for several years. The Maritime Alliance, controlling a powerful navy and supported by Thebes with her splendid troops, outmatched the Doric League. No definite gain resulted, however, and in 374 all were ready for peace. In that year, deputies from the states concerned met in a second peace convention at Sparta. The king's treaty was made the basis of the agreement, but the Persian sovereign was unrepresented. The Greeks were already learning that they could conduct their own affairs without his interference. The treaty left the Athenian Confederacy and the Peloponnesian League intact. The war renewed, 374-1. to The agreement was immediately violated, however, and the war continued three years longer. Meanwhile, Thebes, abandoning the conflict with Lacedaemon, gave her attention to restoring the Boeotian League under her supremacy. Far from limiting her ambition to Boeotia, Thebes now attempted the subjugation of Phocis, a movement which brought a Peloponnesian army into central Greece and converted Athenian friendship into dislike. The Third Peace Convention, 371. Under these circumstances, Athens and Lacedaemon were all the more ready to conclude peace. In 371, accordingly, the Third Peace Convention assembled at Sparta. All the Greek governments sent their deputies, including even Dionysius, Archon of Sicily, and Amyntas, King of Macedon, regarded by the Greeks as a foreign country. The Persian king's embassy was present to take part, though no longer to dictate. It was the most representative body that had thus far gathered in the history of the world, and was further notable for the fact that its purpose was not purely Hellenic, but international. In other words, it was the first world congress in the interest of peace. Speeches of the Athenian Deputies A few years earlier, Isocrates, the great Athenian publicist, had advocated an eternal peace among the Hellenes and a common war upon Persia 
under the joint leadership of Lacedaemon and Athens. The speeches of the three Athenian envoys in this convention, apart from the question of hostility to Persia, seem little more than echoes of his words. It were just and right, said one Athenian deputy to the Lacedaemonians, even to refuse to bear arms against each other, since, as the story runs, the first strangers to whom our forefather Triptolemus showed the unspeakable mystic rites of Demeter and Kore, mother and daughter, were your ancestors. And to Peloponnese first he gave as a gift the seed of Demeter's grain. But if, as it would seem, it is a fixed decree of heaven that war shall never cease among men, yet ought we, your people and our people, to be as slow as possible to begin it, and being in it as swift as possible to bring it to an end. In the opinion of the speaker, permanent friendship was based on the gift and acceptance of a certain element of civilization. Another speaker, more practical, appealed to the motive of expediency. To revert once more to the topic of expediency and common interests, it is admitted, I presume, that, looking at the states collectively, half support your views, half ours, and in every single state one party is for Sparta and another for Athens. Suppose, then, that we were to shake hands, from what quarter can we reasonably anticipate danger and trouble? To put the case in so many words, as long as you are our friends, no one can vex us by land. No one, while we are your supporters, can injure you by sea. Wars like tempests gather and grow to a head from time to time, and again they are dispelled. That we all know. Some future day, if not now, we shall crave, both of us, for peace. Why then need we wait for that moment, holding on until we expire under the multitude of our ills, rather than take time by the forelock and, before irremediable mischief be tied, make peace? While we are yet in the heyday of our strength and fortune, shake hands in mutual amity. So assuredly shall we through you and you through us attain to an unprecedented pinnacle of glory throughout Hellas. Such arguments convinced the assembly of deputies, which accordingly passed a resolution to make peace on the following terms. The withdrawal of Harmos from the cities, the disbanding of armaments, naval and military, and the guarantee of independence to the states. If any state transgresses these stipulations, it lies in the option of any power whatsoever to aid the states so injured, while conversely, to bring such aid is not compulsory on any power against its will. Implicitly, the Persian king was eliminated as an arbiter of Hellenic affairs, and the guardianship of the peace was entrusted in a democratic spirit to all the Hellenes who should interest themselves in the matter. Naturally, the lead would be taken by the more powerful states. Here was clearly attained a condition far more favorable to peace and unity, on the basis of goodwill and common interest, than the world had known before. Epaminondas against Agesilas the good results, however, were negatived by the growing ambition of Thebes. In the preceding century she had revealed, in her federal coinage, an intention to merge the League in a greater Theban state, and had attempted in vain to sign the King's Treaty of 387 with the name Thebans for all Boeotia. Since that date, her unification of Boeotia and her military improvements had vastly augmented her strength, and she was now represented in the convention by Epaminondas, whose name stands in the list of the world's most brilliant commanders. Athens signed for herself, leaving her allies to affix their individual names. When Sparta, for reasons unknown to us, was permitted to sign for her allies, 
Epaminondas wrote the name Thebans with the intention of making it include all Boeotia. The convention accepted the signature for Thebes only, and was on the point of allowing the other states of the League to sign for themselves, when Epaminondas came forward with the request that the name Boeotians be substituted for that of Thebans. Agesilaus hotly objected, whereupon Epaminondas declared in substance that Thebes had as good a right to represent all the Boeotians as Sparta to represent the Periochi of Laconia. Agesilaus, however, repudiated his claim and arbitrarily erased from the document the signature of Thebes, thus debarring that state from the peace. Boeotian Militarism the Theban envoy had acted on mature deliberation and in full confidence of the ability of his own state to maintain the principle which he advocated. Boeotia had developed a body of heavy infantry unequaled in that generation, and her cavalry far surpassed that of Peloponnese. Epaminondas, though thus far known chiefly as a man of culture, a philosopher of the Pythagorean school, was now revealing himself as a brilliant orator and a bold, shrewd diplomatist. While facing Agesilaus in the convention at Sparta, he doubtless felt certain that at need his state would not lack a general worthy of her brave, well-trained soldiers. The Battle of Leuctra, 371. The convention was dissolved, and the deputies returned to their homes, while Thebes prepared for her great conflict with Peloponnese. The army sent by Lacedaemon into Phocis, 10,000 strong, now received orders to invade Boeotia. King Cleombrotus, its general, obeyed. An army of 6,000 under the Boatarchs, including Epaminondas, met him at Leuctra. On his left wing, Epaminondas massed his Thebans in a column 50 deep and led them in an irresistible charge upon the Lacedaemonian force stationed opposite, while his Boeotian allies, in echelon formation, barely came to close quarters with the Peloponnesians. In other words, the Theban commander won by throwing a superior force upon the critical point in his enemy's line. Of the 700 Spartans present, 400, including the king, were slain. Sparta acknowledged her defeat and withdrew the Peloponnesian army. Her supremacy was forever ended. Whether her collapse was for good or evil depended upon the years to come. Here it will suffice to repeat that the convention at Sparta preceding the Battle of Leuctra was evidence of notable political progress and embodied a bright hope of international peace. Part 2. The Ascendancy of Thebes, 371-362. to Effect of the Battle on the Spartans and on Peloponnese. After these events, a messenger was dispatched to Sparta with news of the disaster. He reached his destination on the last day of the Gymnopedia, precisely when the chorus of grown men had entered the theater, the ephors heard the mournful tidings not without grief and pain, as needs they must, in my opinion. But for all that they did not dismiss the chorus, but allowed the contest to run out its natural course. What they did was to deliver the names of the slain to their friends and families, with a word of warning to the women not to make any loud lamentation, but to bear their sorrow in silence. And the next day it was a striking spectacle to see those who had relatives among the fallen moving to and fro in public with bright and radiant looks, while of those whose friends were reported to be living, barely a man was to be seen. And these persons flitted by with lowered heads and scowling brows, as if in humiliation. Narrow and illiberal as were the Spartans, we cannot help admiring their resolution and their discipline. After the great loss at Leuctra, there remained scarcely more than a thousand Spartans capable of bearing arms, and what was far worse, their military prestige had vanished. 
and they had accumulated no treasure of justice and mercy to draw the sympathy of men in the hour of need. No sooner had the Allies become fully aware of the magnitude of the event at Leuctra than they disregarded their Confederate obligations to pursue their individual interests. Throughout Peloponnese, a democratic effort to gain control of the states in opposition to Sparta effected in many a town and city executions, banishments, revolutions, and massacres. Peloponnese was sinking into chaos. Fourth Peace Convention, 371. In the desire to save for peace and order what they could from the general wreck, doubtless too in their own interest, the Athenians summoned a fourth peace convention to meet in their city. How many states were represented we do not know. At all events, the deputies adopted the following resolution. I will abide by the terms of treaty contained in the king's rescript and in the decrees of the Athenians and allies. If any one assails any city among those which have taken this oath, I will render assistance to that city with all my strength. The pledge to support the treaty was a new element in the peace movement. Through this convention, Athens attempted to usurp the place of Sparta as head of the Peloponnesian states, and placed herself under obligations to protect them if assailed. The Arcadian League founded, 371-70. The first consequence of the treaty was the resolution of the Mantineans to rebuild their city. They were aided by other Peloponnesians, and Sparta dared not interfere. Next, Mantinea, Tegea, and all the communities of southern and central Arcadia organized themselves in a league. As a capital, they founded Megalopolis. In it met a council of 50, representing the communities according to their population, and the assembly of the 10,000, including all the citizens of the league. As Lycodamon threatened the new federation, Thebes came to its assistance. Having recently gathered under her hegemony many states of central Greece, she was able to dispatch to Peloponnese an army which, increased on the way by the forces of allies, amounted to 40,000 men or more, commanded by Epaminondas and his associate Boatarchs. For the first time in recorded history, Laconia was ravaged and Sparta threatened by invaders. No effective resistance could be offered. The Liberation of Messenia, 369. The permanent result of the expedition, however, was the liberation of Messenia. While the Periochic towns of the south shore remained faithful to Sparta, the rest of the country was organized in a new state. The Helots, now emancipated, became its citizens, increased in number by the return of exiles whose ancestors had escaped to other lands from hard bondage to the Spartans. It is an interesting fact that centuries of serfdom had not robbed these people of their love of freedom or degraded them below the capability for self-government. As a capital for the state recalled to life, Messini was founded on Mount Ithome, the strongest military position south of Corinth. Extensive ruins of the city walls remain to the present day. It was only just that this brave manly folk should be rescued from serfdom, but it meant the doom of Sparta as a power in Hellas. Nearly a half of Lacedaemon, and that too the most fertile part, was wrested from her. Thereafter, Hellas had to work out its problems without her aid, for the rest of the Greeks were unwilling to sacrifice Messenia to her, and she would enter into no agreement with them which did not involve the recovery of her lost territory. Thebes in Northern Greece 5th Peace Convention, 368. 6th Peace Convention, 367. Shortly afterward, through the campaigns of Pelopidas, who stood second to Epaminondas in generalship, Thebes forced her hegemony upon Thessaly and Macedon, but nowhere was she able to maintain peace or establish a firm control. 
Under these circumstances, an agent of a Persian satrap dared appear in Greece to bring about a settlement of affairs in the king's interest. A fifth peace convention, accordingly, representing the principal states concerned, including Dionysius and the Persian king, met at Delphi. As Sparta and Thebes failed to agree on the Mycenaean question, the meeting bore no fruit. Thereupon arose an undignified scramble for the king's favor. When their embassies met in his palace at Susa in a sixth peace convention, and he believed himself to be once more, and with little effort of his own, the arbiter of Hellas, he dictated among the terms of peace the independence of Messenia and the disbanding of the Athenian navy, which had recently checked the expansion of Thebes. His terms were clearly a recognition of Theban hegemony, a favor won by Pelopidas, who headed the Theban legation. On hearing the terms, Leon, an Athenian, protested to his fellow deputies. Upon my word, Athenians, it seems to me high time that we look for some other friend than the king. These words well expressed the sentiment of the anti-Theban party throughout Hellas. In like spirit, the Arcadian ambassador, returning home full of contempt for the Persian power, reported to the assembly of the Ten Thousand. The king appears to have a large army of confectioners and pastry cooks, butlers and doorkeepers. But as for men capable of doing battle with the Hellenes, I looked carefully, yet could discover none. Besides all this, even the report of his wealth seems bombastic nonsense. Why, the golden plane tree, so belauded, is not big enough to furnish shade to a single grasshopper. The report was an exaggeration, but admirably expressed the liberty-loving sentiment of a warlike mountain folk recently organized into a strong state. Seventh Peace Convention, 367-6 Immediately, a Seventh Peace Convention, the last in the series under consideration, met at Thebes to discuss the king's terms. The deputies protested, however, that they had come to hear the report, but had been given no instruction to ratify it. The Thebans accordingly sent an embassy among the other Greek states, with the demand that they swear to obey the king's rescript, for they were convinced that no Hellenic state would dare incur the enmity at once of Thebes and Persia. Corinth, however, refused to bind herself by oath to the king, and the other Greek states followed her example. Thus finally the Persian king lost his hold upon Hellas, and the attempt of Pelopidas through negotiation to establish an empire for his city proved a mere cloud castle. It is more regrettable that the conventions, which had promised not only a Hellenic but an international peace, degenerated and died with little fruit. Waning Prosperity of Thebes, Naval Campaign of Epaminondas, 364. Meanwhile, Epaminondas had been active. He had invaded Peloponnese a second and third time, but as he had accomplished nothing satisfactory there, the details of his campaigns may be omitted here. Theban affairs in Thessaly and Macedon were scarcely more prosperous. The great impediment to Theban supremacy, however, was the Athenian navy. Concluding, therefore, that he must by all means destroy it, Epaminondas built a fleet of a hundred triremes, and in 364 sailed forth to dispute with Athens the control of the Aegean. Fortunately for him, the maritime states were resenting recent self-aggrandizements of Athens, and Byzantium passed over to him, while others wavered in their allegiance to Athens. His naval campaign was so great a success that Thebans may well have hoped in another summer to drive Athens from the sea. Approaching the Catastrophe The support of a navy, however, imposed upon them too great a strain to be long endurable, especially at a time when their interests in the peninsula demanded their whole attention. In the year of the naval campaign, Pelopidas had to conduct a new Thessalian campaign, 
in which he lost his life in battle. Although in the following year all Thessaly was reduced to obedience, the Thebans feared a disruption of their own league. They marched against Orchomenus, whose people they suspected of disloyalty, destroyed the city, executed the men as traitors, and enslaved the women and children. The horror aroused through Greece by this outrage foreboded the catastrophe in the drama of Theban greatness. An anti-Theban coalition. The ground for this event was preparing in Peloponnese, which had long seethed in chaos. In Arcadia, a strong party, too proud and too devoted to local interests to submit to Theban hegemony, had split the league in two and were building up a great anti-Theban coalition. Mantinea, with a majority of Arcadian cantons, joined with Elis, Achaea, Athens, Sparta, and one or two lesser states on equal terms to prevent the enslavement of Peloponnese. Epaminondas had at his command, in addition to Boeotians, troops from Euboea and Thessaly, and could count upon Argos, Tegea, and some other Arcadian communities. His hope was that his presence in the south might win him an overwhelming alliance, so that by peaceful means he could quiet the turmoil and restore the ascendancy of his state. He attempted accordingly in a night march to take Sparta by surprise, and failing in that effort, he hurriedly returned to Arcadia, where he tried to surprise the Mantinean population with their herds in the fields. When this strategy, too, proved fruitless, and no hostile state came over to his side, nothing remained but to give battle. The Battle of Mantinea, 362. In spite of forced marches, his men were in high spirits. There was no labor which his troops would shrink from, either by night or by day. There was no danger they would flinch from, and with the scantiest provisions their discipline never failed them. When, therefore, he issued his last orders to them to prepare for battle, they promptly obeyed. He gave the word, the cavalry fell to whitening their helmets. The heavy infantry of the Arcadians began inscribing clubs as a crest on their shields, as though they were Thebans, and all were engaged in sharpening their lances and swords and in polishing their heavy shields. The battleground was the plain of Mantinea, surrounded by lofty ranges. His enemy numbered about 22,000, his own force about 33,000. He gained the advantage, too, of taking the enemy by surprise. The main tactic movement of Leuctra was successfully repeated, but the great commander fell mortally wounded, in his last breath advising his countrymen to make peace. His death left the conflict undecided. The situation before and after the battle is summarized by Xenophon in one of his best passages. Effects of the Battle the effective result of these happenings was the opposite of that which the world at large expected. Here, where well-nigh the whole of Hellas was met together in one field, and the combatants stood rank against rank confronted, there was no one who doubted that, in the event of battle, the conquerors this day would rule, and that those who lost would be their subjects. But God so ordered it that both belligerents alike set up trophies as claiming victory, and neither interfered with the other in the act. Both parties alike gave back their enemies dead under a truce, and in right of victory. Both alike, in symbol of defeat, under a truce, took back their dead. Furthermore, though both claimed to have won the day, neither could show that he had thereby gained any accession of territory or state or empire, or was better situated than before the battle. In fact, uncertainty and confusion had gained ground, being tenfold greater throughout the length and breadth of Hellas after the battle than before. Estimate of Epaminondas and of Theban Ascendancy Of the brilliant generalship of Epaminondas there can be no doubt. His private character, too, was lovable, 
and in public life he stood forth an unselfish patriot. Undoubtedly toward Hellas he cherished loyal, benevolent feelings. It is impossible, however, to discover in him a sign of constructive statesmanship. As manifested by his conduct, his single idea was to substitute Thebes for Sparta as the head of Greece, and in working to that end, he made use of the methods long in vogue. From the beginning, the task was hopeless. The Thebans were as narrow as the Spartans, and had far less experience in dealing with other states. Even in Boeotia, they could maintain their control in no other way than by a policy of frightfulness. More impotent were they to win the loyalty of other Greeks. Their sudden decline after the Battle of Mantinea proves that their ascendancy was largely due to one man. City-State Supremacy, the Hellenic Outlook The idea of institutional union of all the Hellenes on terms of equal participation in the central government and with guarantees for the rights of the weaker states probably no one as yet had conceived. The city-state supremacy had been essentially a tyranny, whether harsh or mild, and it was now at least proved that no Hellenic state was strong enough to force her rule upon the rest. The disintegration of Hellas resulting from the downfall of Sparta, the collapse of the Peloponnesian League, and the rise and decline of Thebes was exceedingly discouraging to such men of broad vision and liberal mind as Isocrates. It was inevitable that the chaos should last long and wreak manifold injury upon the Greek world. For all that, it should not be hastily assumed that Hellas was politically bankrupt, that her only salvation rested upon the interference of an outsider. The Hellenes were still a great creative people. Their expanding intelligence and liberality, more capable than ever of solving the problem of unity, were equaled only by their superb physical vitality and by the martial energy stored up in the agricultural areas of Greece, a reservoir of military strength which, if rightly applied, was capable not merely of protecting Hellas, but of conquering and ruling an empire. End of section 21